Well, I've, I feel the need to begin this message with a disclaimer um, because I've learned that titles are important. Names are important. And so I've chosen to title this message The Making of a Masterpiece. But along with that comes this disclaimer. I am not an artist. <laughs> I would love to get up in front of you today and have some whiteboard behind me and paint my message as I speak to you, but that's not going to happen. Um, I knew from an early age when we did things in school like Play-Doh and tissue paper, flowers, that visual arts were not going to be my primary gift. And so maybe words were a track that I needed to follow instead. Um, and it, so it was with much trepidation as I um, started my undergraduate degree at a small liberal arts university that I discovered there was truth in advertising there and that they were indeed to my dismay, on many counts, a liberal arts university. In the way that you would describe them, they were liberal, that was the truth. And um, also that there was an emphasis on many different kinds of the arts. And in addition to the classes we needed to take in the humanities and in other areas, I was a biology major, but they were spreading our education over a great deal of things. I learned that I was going to have to take a class from the art department. And I was pretty protective of my GPA at that time. That faded a little bit by the time seminary came, but um, at, at that point, I was pretty protective of those numbers that followed my name, and I thought, um, you know, I love painting, I love sculpture, I love photography, but I'm not quite sure what that would do to that number. Until then, I discovered there was a class that seemed to be created just for me. It was called art appreciation, <laughs> and um, that I could do. I don't make art, but I do know how to appreciate it. And I tell you that as a disclaimer, but also to say that the story that I would like us to follow this morning in this message, one of the stories, could be called a story of art appreciation. It's a story of two of the greatest artists that the world has ever known, and the one person who formed a link between them. Um, those two great artists, their names are pretty well known in the world. The first is Donatello, and he was one of the greatest sculptors of the 15th century. Uh, the other name, of course, is even more well known. His name is Michelangelo, um, mostly a household name, who was possibly the greatest sculptor and artist that the world has ever known. And these two men never met each other. Michelangelo was born nine years after Donatello's death, so they, they never had a chance to be introduced. Um, Michelangelo, of course, is the more famous of the two. His Sistine Chapel ceiling is one of the wonders of the world. Uh, his statue of David is one of the best known pieces of art in the world. But a lot of people don't know that Donatello also created a statue of David. And if you look at the two side by side, um, they have a lot of differences between them. One was cast almost 75 years before the other. So one is made of marble, the other of bronze. One stands five feet tall, the other an immense 13 feet tall. But if you put aside the differences for a moment and just the first impression of them, what you find about these two great works of art are some incredible similarities, both in form and in subject. Both are of the biblical King David as a warrior, 
Um, one depicts him before a battle, the other depicts him coming after the same battle. And if we were in art appreciation class today, we would also learn that there are some uncanny similarities in the techniques used to create these two works of art. That the study of the human form is very similar and that there are even techniques and details ascribed that are so similar that if we didn't know better, we would assume that Michelangelo sat and watched Donatello create. We would assume that Michelangelo had sat at the feet of this other artist and learned technique and form and appreciation for the human body from him and used those lessons to create his own statue, but we know that never happened. And the reason for that is nine years, the gap between the birth of one man and the previous death of the other man. If we didn't know better, we'd think that Michelangelo studied Donatello's work and technique um, but since that couldn't have happened, we have to ask the question, what is the connection between these two great men? What, um, what is the missing link between these two? And it's this one man, his name is Bertoldo de Giovanni. He is the missing link between two of the greatest artists of history. Um, now, Bertoldo's name is not a household name. Most people have never heard of him. And let's just get the most obvious out of the way and say this, poor Bertoldo never had a teenage mutant ninja turtle named after him. Um, some of you are remembering that from childhood, the ninja turtles are back again, so some of you have children who would appreciate that, but uh, there are ninja turtles named, Donatello and Michelangelo, but no Bertoldo de Giovanni there. Uh, growing up in Italy, uh, Bertoldo de Giovanni longed to be a great artist, and so he did what you did when you wanted to grow in your art and your craft. He found a great artist to learn from. He approached the great artist, Donatello, and asked if he could be his apprentice, asked if he could join him and, and learn from him and link up to him in his works of art, and, and if he could follow in his footsteps and learn all of his techniques. And as his career went on and his mentor passed away later in years, a young man named Michelangelo came knocking on Bertoldo's door, asking if he could be his apprentice, if he could learn from him, link up to him, and learn his techniques. And so the techniques that Bertoldo de Giovanni learned from Donatello and mastered, he then passed on to Michelangelo. This man is the missing link between these two great artists. And I know that Bertoldo wanted to be a household name. <laughs> he wanted to have a great work of art hanging on a wall somewhere in a museum that we would all know and talk about. But I wonder if he ever knew that his greatest masterpiece was Michelangelo himself. That without this one man's faithfulness in learning and teaching, the world might never have gotten a Michelangelo. Can you imagine that? Um, he was a master, but a master of a different kind of art, the art of mentoring. And, and mentoring is something we, we talk about around here. We study it in leadership classes. Uh, the world has caught hold of that word. You can read leadership blogs on it. You can go to Joseph Beth and find a, a business section with books about mentoring and business. As with anything that is a good idea, um, our culture tends to think we invented it. 
Like, hey, have you heard about this great new thing called mentoring? It's really wonderful. Um, but we did not, in fact, invent mentoring. We know that it goes generations back, that it is an ancient art and a beautiful art, that it goes way back to artists like Donatello and Michelangelo, that it goes even further back to great prophets as well. And um, there are so many great stories in scripture that include mentoring and discipling, but one of the greatest is the story of the two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And if you are preaching and you have an older congregation, this is the point at which you ask them to turn their hearing aids up. Because the names Elijah and Elisha are so similar that it's almost hard to distinguish the spoken word between the two. So I always try to give a little distinction of who we're talking about here. Um, Elijah, of course, was the older of the two men. He was uh, one of the most remarkable prophets that Israel has ever known. He performed great miracles. He um, called down fire from heaven. He defeated 450 prophets of Baal, won against 450, and God won, as God always does. Um, he said it would not rain, and it didn't rain. He said it would rain, and it did rain, all because he was listening to God. He even raised someone from the dead, and he heard the still, small voice of God. And that's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament for many reasons, but one of them is this, that it was at his lowest point that God's voice came and spoke to him. It was his most depressed moment when he didn't even have the energy to seek God out anymore, and God sought him out and came and whispered. And part of that whisper was a calling to find a student, a disciple, a replacement for himself, instructions to go and look for this younger man whose name was Elisha. And because of that, I believe that as much as the teacher is a gift to the student, the student is God's gift to the teacher. Did you know that? To bring hope and encouragement and vision of God's future. Elisha was God's gift to Elijah in this dark and deep moment. And so Elijah did what God said. He set out looking for this younger man, this farmer named Elisha, and he found him where you find a farmer in the fields, on the plow behind the oxen. And Elijah never, never did anything the typical way that you would expect. Prophets usually didn't. And, and so I love this unceremonious moment where he just walks out into the field, runs up to Elisha, who is on the plow, takes his mantle, his cloak, his prophetic um, garment off of his own shoulders, throws it across Elisha's shoulders, and then keeps on keeping on. He just, he walks off. I mean, there are no words of instruction uh, that are recorded anyway. There's no indication that he gave any calling or word. It was just this symbolic moment that Elisha evidently knew exactly what it meant. And the symbolism was so, so clear it was like a tag of vocation, a, a game of vocational tag, right? You are it. <laughs> you are the new prophet. Tag. And, and he set off on his merry way out of that field. And, and Elisha knew that he couldn't leave it like that. He knew he couldn't keep on plowing and become a prophet. That if he wanted to become a great prophet, he needed to, to follow a great prophet. Did you know that if you want to become a great leader, you need to follow a great leader? 
Elisha knew that. He knew it in his bones, and so he jumped down, followed this strange prophet out of the field, and asked permission to go back and do one thing, um, which in Texas we would define as throwing his own goodbye barbecue. He, he chopped up the plow, he started a bonfire, he killed the oxen, he, he barbecued them and served them to the people. Um, and since Elijah was connected with feeding and providing nourishment, God's sustenance for people, Elisha began his ministry feeding and providing nourishment for God's people. And um, in that moment, I think Elisha, more than anybody else, burned his bridges, didn't he? There was no getting back on that plow. There was no following those ox around that field any longer. Um, there was no turning back. That's the decision, isn't it? to leave one's nets, to burn the plow, to say, as we would say or sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. This is the transformation of life, the transformation of purpose and vocation. This is the moment, this decision to say, God, my eyes are forward, not backward. I will not look back as I go forward with you. I will not, as I minister, uh, leave a browser window open somewhere with other career options or um, when I'm frustrated in ministry with other graduate school options or when I'm frustrated with my life, Google, uh, do a Google search of just how much I might be making my salary if I happen to choose another career path eventually. No, no looking back, looking forward, all in. That's the decision to follow God's purpose and God's future. Elisha made that decision, and when he did, he became a link in this chain of faith that God had laid out before him. He linked up with someone he could follow and learn from, someone who would help him grow. Um, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself how faith in Jesus Christ has made it this long. Like with all of the failures and weaknesses of the church, how are we here today? How do we make it this far? What is the plan? I mean, if Jesus started this ministry and, and knew that he would have just a short time to communicate something that would make it all the way to us, what would he spend time doing that would truly get the message 2,000 plus years forward and then some? Did he stop to create a mission statement and a vision path? Did he have a capital campaign to make sure he built some buildings that we could admire and meet in? Did he write a lot of books or create just the right program or find just the right curriculum? What we find is that Jesus spent most of his time investing in the lives of 12 people and not with a 100% success rate either. He walked with them. He ate with them. He discipled them. He mentored them. And today we do things like mission statements and vision paths, campaigns and buildings and books and dissertation, all to serve that original mission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. These things that we do and learn about and invest in, they are important only as far as they enable us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that changing those 12 lives, first and foremost, was the most important thing he could do while on earth to change the world in a lasting way, that his investment in them would equal their investment in the future along with the Holy Spirit, which was a game changer. 
And in a way, it sounds a little too simple to be true, right? Like, okay, I took that note, what's next? One disciple mentoring another disciple, is that it, Jesus? That the power of help of the Holy Spirit can make something of that that would last more than 2,000 years? That would start with 12 and end up with billions of followers? That chain of faith actually works. And you are part of it. You are a link in that chain. Um, this morning, I think, as you came in, you were given some links. They're green. They look like this. Um, hopefully, you have some of those in your hand. And um, this is going to be our object lesson of sorts. I told you I wasn't an artist. This is about as good as it gets with me. Paper chain. Um, I want you to take those, and there's one in the middle of the other two. Would you take out a pen or pencil? or you know, nudge your neighbor and ask, ask to share their pen or pencil. Um, and I think if you don't have one, you might raise your hand because we have an intern that might be coming with a few of them. Um, take that center link and write your name on it. Do you have it? Um, you are the missing link in this story that we're telling. You're the middle of this chain. Write your name on that middle link and then, because I'm sure it won't take you long to remember and write your own name, um, look at one link that is next to it and think about this. Who is someone that has mentored you? Someone that's invested in you, poured life and faith into you? You can write down names, initials, people from the past or the present, people who have been that rock for you, someone about whom you might even say, I would not have faith in Jesus Christ today if it had not been for this person. This person grabbed hold of me and linked me into this chain of faith. You know, these people who have influenced you, have mentored you, those who have gone on, those who are still in this life, this is a practice of gratitude, isn't it? It's an important practice to say, thank you, God. Thank you. These are gifts, these people that you um, put as an embodiment of your love for me and in your investment in me into my life. Thank you for these people. Some of these people may have been official mentors to you, or they may be now. They may have worn the title of teacher or preacher or grandmother or parent. And some of them had no idea, did they? They had no idea that you were watching, that you were learning, that you were looking to them. The, the first name that I would put on this link of people um, that had linked me into this chain of faith is one that happened very early for me. Uh, the name is Tish Massey. And Mrs. Massey was my piano teacher um, for 10 years of my childhood. That meant that every Tuesday afternoon after school, my mom would drop me off on Mrs. Massey's doorstep, and I would go in where we would go first, not to the piano, but to the kitchen where she would pour me a glass of milk and serve me a Little Debbie snack cake. Now that was an important detail for me because we didn't have those at my house. You remember the cool snacks that everybody else had but you? That was the cool snack. I had low expectations. <laughs> Little Debbie snack cake was an important part of my Tuesdays growing up and, and we would stand there while I ate and drank and we would talk and she would ask me how my day was at school and when we were done with that, we would move to her living room and sit at her baby grand piano where for over 10 years, Mrs. Massey taught me music. But that's not all she was teaching me. She was teaching me about life 
and about faith. And her family would come in at the end of their day and I would see her interact with them and see how her life operated in her home. And Mrs. Massey was also the choir director at my church. Um, in a small church where pastors kind of came and went, maybe every two or three years, we had a lot of goodbye barbecues at my church. Some of them were very celebratory. Um, some of them were a little sadder than that, but in, in a church where the pastor, the official pastor came and went every two or three years, Mr. and Mrs. Massey led our music program for 30 years. And I will tell you this, I don't care what the nameplate said, they pastored that church and kept it strong. And it was at church that Mrs. Massey, when I was a scared 10-year-old, first put me up in front of the church and had me sing my first solo. Uh, knees knocking. I'm sure the congregation could hear the sound of my knees knocking. I was so terrified. And afterwards, she told me I did a good job, whether I did or not. And um, over the years, she would have me get up and sing in front of the church. And then she would say, Jessica, say a few words about your song before you sing. So I would talk, and then I would sing. And then there, there was more talking and less singing. And then she just had me get up and talk in front of the church. And by the time she was done with me, I was a preacher. That's really how it happened. No one ever paid Tish Massey to teach me anything but music. But she had a calling, and she grabbed hold of me before I even knew what life and faith were about. And she believed in me and, and introduced me to Christ in beautiful ways. And I don't think I would have the faith in Christ I do today if it weren't for Tish Massey. I hope that there are names here that you can have gratitude for today. If they are living, thank them in person. If they are not, praise God for those names. Praise God anyway. That is a gift from God. This is the easy link because we are grateful. But I want you to take the link that is on the other side of your name, the link that represents people that you are being called to disciple, to mentor, to pour your life into, and I want you to write some names there. You can write things like my future church or my youth group, but I want you to be bold and write an actual name, someone that you are investing in, are pouring your life into. This is not something that waits for seminary to be finished. Who is it that you are, um, that you are grabbing hold of and linking up with so that they will have faith in Christ who is it that you will say those beautiful mentoring words to today? I'm so proud of you. Before you go to bed tonight, send that text message or email. Just those words. I'm so proud of you. Those are mentoring words. Those are important. Sometimes that happens to you whether you know it's happening or not. When I graduated from seminary and became a pastor, I was sitting in my office one day when a father and daughter appeared in the doorway, and um, the father was kind of pushing the daughter. She was maybe eight or nine at the time, pushing her into my office. And when I looked up from my computer, he was saying to his daughter, Lauren, you tell Reverend Jessica what you did. I thought, well, great. Nothing like being the um, unwelcome confessional in the church, right? You tell Reverend Jessica what you did, he said. And she um, came reluctantly into my office and she said, I was playing dress up. And he said, tell her, tell her what you were doing when you played dress up. What did you use as your costume? He said, she said, I put on one of my daddy's ties. And when she motioned how she put on the tie, she did not 
pantomime tying the tie like her daddy. She pantomimed laying the tie across her shoulders, draped in front of her. Not the way you wear a tie, the way you wear a stole, a mantle. And he said, tell Reverend Jessica who you were pretending to be. And she said, I was pretending to be you. And um, I was so surprised and humbled and terrified, right? Have you ever had that moment? Someone is watching. Someone is listening. Someone is believing that God could do something through me. Someone is trying on the way that I treat other people, the way that I handle myself in conflict. Someone is thinking about that, and it's affecting their life and their future. That's a link that I never knew was being made. Sometimes you just don't know. And God is linking someone up to your life. There will be people whose names you know and people whose names you never do. Um, one of the more official people that I linked to in my life happened in this, in this very room. I was in an evangelism class as a new student, I think a first-year student. It's hard to remember that far back sometimes. And my evangelism professor was a man named Bob Tuttle. And um, Bob Tuttle, if you have not ever had a chance to meet him or know him, he's just hard to describe, but I'll try. This is the way I would describe Bob Tuttle. If Clint Eastwood and John Wesley had a love child... <laughs> Bob Tuttle is about what that would be like. And uh, he was so loving and caring and aggressive in his teaching at the same time that we were all terrified into learning. And so whatever he said, we wrote it down. And so I remember him saying to us one day, you people are so ignorant that you don't even know what you don't know. And we all just wrote it down. I don't even know <laughs> enough to know what I do. I am ignorant. And he said, to prepare for a life of ministry, what you need is not another class and not another book. You need a mentor, and you need to find them now. He said, not only that, you've got to be part of a mentoring sandwich. You need to be wherever you are in the middle of someone that you're looking up to and someone that you're bringing alongside. You've got to be in the middle everywhere you go, and you've got to find those people within six months of when you arrive at a new place, or you won't do it. You won't do it, he said. Don't be ignorant. And I wrote that down, don't be ignorant. It's in my notes from my evangelism class. And, and he scared me into acting on it. And so when um, in that next week, we had a speaker in this chapel whose name was Margaret Thurkelson. And when she stood up to speak in this pulpit, she talked about Jesus as if she had had coffee with him that morning. The way she spoke of her relationship with Jesus was so intimate and so beautiful. And I thought, I need some of that. I need to know her and walk with her to find out what this is about. And so that's how I ended up sitting in Margaret Thurkelson's living room about once a month over a couple of years. And she was a great woman of prayer. She had written books on prayer and traveled and spoken on prayer, but none of that was anything compared to hearing her pray and praying with her. And so we sat in her living room where we talked about Jesus and talked to Jesus. We had coffee with him. He was there. And I learned more about prayer from that woman than from anything else in my life. And, and there was one moment when I thought I would give her a compliment. We were sitting there together, and so I offered her a compliment that I had heard other people give one another. I thought, this is a good compliment, so I'll give it to her. I said, Mrs. Thurkelson, 
I hope that someday I will be half the woman of prayer that you are. And I did not get the response that I expected. Her response was very quick and very sharp. She said to me, don't you do that, honey. And I thought, what is this about? She said, don't you do that, honey. Don't you ask to be half of what I am. What would happen in this world if we were all half of the generation before us? What if the church diminished by half in every generation, half the prayer, half the missionaries, half the service, half the heart for the poor? What would become of us? Don't you pray to be half of me? She said, don't you know the story of Elijah and Elisha? And I did, but I had to go look it up. And it came a little further than the story that was read to us this morning in the book of 2 Kings, the story of when Elijah was about to be taken up to heaven in this unusual way, leave it to Elijah to go out with a bang, this chariot of fire and this whirlwind. When he looks at his um, disciple, his student, who had begun by calling him master and treating him as if he was a servant, he was a servant to his mentor, but in the end, we hear that Elisha was calling him father. That's how a mentoring relationship progresses from servant to son. Um, and in this situation, Elijah said, what can I do for you before I am taken up away from you? And you know what Elisha said? He said, um, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. You know this story, right? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. You know what he didn't say? I want to be half the prophet you are someday. What if the church doubled in every generation in the power of prayer and service, the heart for the world and the poor? Are you praying for double? I mean, that's a bold prayer, but it's Elisha's prayer. We come to a moment um, where we read these stories in the Old Testament, and different people read the stories differently, but here's one faithful reading, and that is this. Elijah's story is told mostly in the book of 1 Kings, where he performed, give or take a few, about eight miracles, including raising one person from the dead. And Elisha's story is told mostly in the book of 2 Kings, where depending on how you read it, give or take one or two, he performed about 16 miracles, including raising two people from the dead. He got what he prayed for. What if in every generation we prayed for double? What if we prayed for this world to see double the power of God through us? Not double our own glory, never that, but double God's glory. That's what Elijah and Elisha teach us. It's what Donatello and Michelangelo teach us. It's what Bertoldo de Giovanni lived on this earth to do. Um, Bertoldo de Giovanni ended up being a great artist, but he may have never known that his greatest masterpiece was Michelangelo himself. And you may have in mind a masterpiece that you are hoping to leave behind. I'm gonna hope you're thinking about that, right? A legacy that you wanna leave. There may be a church you want to build or grow, a ministry or mission that you were set out to do, a book you want to publish, a dissertation you want to finish, a legacy you want to leave. Are you thinking about that? But I have news for you. Your masterpiece is probably a person. It's probably a person. And if you're not growing people, you're not growing the kingdom of God. Amen?
Bertoldo Giovanni um, worked not in sculpture mostly, but in coins. And we always see him pictured often with one of his works. Uh, one of his most famous coins, one last thought of art appreciation, is found in the British Museum. And those who walk past it and admire it see this incredible detail found on such a small scale, the scene of Jesus coming on the clouds. And many people say that they feel it's familiar to them for some reason. They feel they've seen it somewhere before, this tiny scene with Jesus at the center. And they, they don't really remember where they've seen it until they remember the Sistine Chapel. That the same scene in miniature that Bertoldo created on a coin, Michelangelo took and blew up on a ceiling. Not just double, maybe more than a hundredfold, as the story of the sower tells us, that the harvest can be. So we know that Michelangelo probably saw that coin, right? He probably held it in his hand. He probably turned it over and studied the scene. He probably traced it with his fingers, and maybe he prayed a prayer for double. And that prayer through the power of the Holy Spirit included God blowing up the dream of his mentor larger than life to create a masterpiece through Michelangelo. I am no Michelangelo. I am not an artist. That is my disclaimer of the day. But I am working on a masterpiece. I'm looking at it. And the tools that you and I get to hold in our hands to create that masterpiece are more precious than anything that will ever hang on a wall in a museum. I hope that you are praying for a masterpiece that God will create through you. I'm going to invite you to take these links and to hold one in one hand and one in the other with you in the middle. And I want to have just a moment of prayer as Isaac plays for us where you pray a prayer of gratitude for those on one link. And take a moment to pray a prayer asking God for a masterpiece that he will make through you. Um, let's take a couple of minutes just to thank God as we think about these links that we're part of.
God, we're grateful because before we even knew that we needed a link up, you provided one for us. We're grateful that you connected us through this chain of discipleship over generations that we never knew through people who served and gave and taught. We're grateful, but we're also called. And Lord, we long to make a masterpiece. We long for the church, for your body, your bride, to grow in strength and power and beauty. And we don't know how to do that by ourselves. We know that you've given us people who need us, who look to us. We don't have the strength within our own selves. So Lord, send your Holy Spirit. Bring double, triple, a hundredfold. Lord, grow your body, your church, your bride. Help us to stand in the middle with arms outstretched and open our eyes to see the masterpiece you're making. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.